Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It seems like every day we're reminded how difficult it is growing up and being a teenager. The work of Gene Twinge and others has shown the impact of technology, social media, and our always-on culture. Add to this stories about growing up black or Hispanic in America and the hyperbaric pressures that that adds. And then add to this list what it must be like growing up in America as a Muslim teenager, particularly one who cares about their religious practices and walks that fine line between wanting to fit in and wanting to still maintain their Muslim identity. My guest John O'Brien went directly into the heart of a Muslim community to understand what all of this means in the everyday life of teenage boys. John O'Brien is an assistant professor of sociology at New York University, Abu Dhabi, and he's the author of the new book, Keeping It Halal, The Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenagers. John O'Brien, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. It's great to have you here. First of all, tell us a little bit about how you did this, how you got a Muslim community, a particularly community of boys, to, to trust you and to really allow you to observe them up close and personal. Yeah, well, it took a while. Uh, it was a couple different things, I think, that came together. I was a graduate student in sociology and interested in doing an ethnographic project where you go and observe a group of people over time. Uh, I was also a Muslim, and I'm a Muslim convert myself, so I was raised Catholic, but in 2003, um, in part uh, from meeting my wife and other people who became my friends, uh, became a Muslim myself. And so that both gave me access to this community and also um, made me quite interested in trying to look at the issue of, of being a Muslim person in the United States, uh, especially in the post 9-11 era. Mm -hmm. And talk a little bit about where this community was. I know you haven't identified it specifically, but talk a little bit about sort of the general tenor of it. Yeah, so this is in a, a large American city that I do have to keep confidential, the, the exact location. Um, but these kids went to large private schools. Um, they, you know, uh, lived in sort of working class neighborhoods, very diverse neighborhoods, mixed with all different kinds of kids. Um, but also attended the mosque regularly, went to the equivalent of Sunday school, which also takes place on Sundays when you learn your Quran and your sayings from the Prophet Muhammad um, and some Arabic. And so it was sort of like a community center uh, in part, the mosque that I spent time at. So it had a very neighborhood feel to it. And so in a lot of ways, if you saw these guys on the street, you would think, you know, they looked African-American, Latino. Uh, they kind of fit in visually in that way. They're sort of set apart from maybe young women who would wear the headscarf or hijab who would be identifiably Muslim. But their names, you know, are Muslim and their practices are Muslim. And a lot of who they are as people uh, is Muslim. Talk a little bit about the age of these young men. Yeah, so when I first got to know them, so I really sort of fell in with this one group of, of young men who I clicked with over time, I think in part because we had a shared interest in music, particularly hip-hop music, and also they were just very funny and sort of fun to hang out with, so I kind of fell in with them over time. I'd had some experience working with young people myself, which I think kind of gave me a leg up here along with my Muslim identity. Um, but so the, so the younger, there were two sets of brothers, and the younger brothers were kind of in late middle school age, maybe 12 and the older brothers were in later high school, maybe uh, 15 or 16. And so when I got to know them, they were kind of growing up through these very important adolescent years. And I spent about three and a half years with them. So I got to really see them kind of go through uh, this adolescence as Muslims. Mm -hmm. And as you got to know these boys, talk a little bit about how they felt about being Muslim, about what their concerns were. I suspect it's different than what we might think their concerns would be. 
Yeah, it was. You know, that was one thing I was really committed to with this project was centering it on what was important to them. I mean, Muslim people are talked about so often, but I think very rarely heard from in the media and in popular culture. And so I really want to kind of center what they felt was important. And these young men, I really expected it to be more about maybe discrimination or harassment, uh, facing, you know, Islamophobia from people at school or in the media. And that was part of their life. But the real central concerns of their lives were very similar to those of other teenagers, which are things like romantic relationships, listening to music, going to school, trying to be cool and fit in and have fun and thinking about their future. But they did have to balance this with this kind of Muslim identity, which was very important to them. So really, the more I got to know them, the more I kind of saw these certain themes come into focus that they were struggling with, which were really about how to balance being an American teenager, which has its own kind of set of expectations and rituals and norms with being a good Muslim which was important to their parents and their community and themselves. Talk about their relationship with their parents, and were there any consistent patterns to what you saw in that regard? Yeah, I did. I mean, the, the group I tended to to follow had pretty close relationships with their parents. Um, I think there was a sort of openness from their parents to letting these young men um, kind of think through and talk through and work through the best way to to be a Muslim that would allow them to kind of keep this identity, keep these practices, many of which can be hard to keep. There, You know, there's fasting during Ramadan for an entire month of every day you're fasting, uh, except for at night. Uh, there's, you know, praying five times a day is what you're supposed to do. Um, There's attending the mosque regularly. Um, But I think these parents were also open-minded to these kids, you know, partaking in American popular culture, music and getting to know people, you know, young women and getting to know different people of different backgrounds. So I think the open-mindedness of the parents and the leaders of the community also went a long way to allowing these young men to feel that they were both really at heart Muslim and American. How did they identify with being American? Um, so that was really something I kind of saw play out, you know, day to day. So the the benefit of this kind of methodology of what they call ethnographic methodology is really seeing people's everyday life. So not just what people say, but what do they do? And for these young men, like a lot of young people, I think uh, popular culture was a big part of their life. So music, particularly rap music, uh, is such a popular music worldwide, but definitely in American urban culture. And so for them, this was a real way to connect to other young people of varying backgrounds. And so really kind of mainstream popular culture was something they could tap into and feel like they were part of really American society, which, you know, in addition to sort of different than maybe American patriotism is really American culture. Um, They also really emphasize something that's important to many teenagers and especially American teenagers, which is a sense of independence and freedom and kind of doing what you wanted to when you wanted to do it. And this would really sometimes be in tension with the demands of of an Islamic life. So again, you have to pray certain times a day. You have to go to the mosque. So this could feel like it would sort of pull against this desire to kind of do whatever you want when you want to do it. But I saw that they kind of found ways to, to meet both of those demands in ways that worked for them and uh, made them feel good about it. What were the internal conflicts that they were going through in order to try and balance this aspect of life? Well, it was really about, I think, the desire to 
you know, um, maintain this identity that was important to them, uh, maintain connections to their community and their family, um, but also sort of be accepted um, in their schools, be accepted in their neighborhood peer groups. You know, some people deal with this in different ways. Some families would maybe keep the kids much more sheltered, um, just at home and kind of keep them away from American culture. Other people would, the kids would kind of run away from their religion or the immigrant background and just kind of want to be sort of forget that part of them. But I think you know, in trying to do both of these, sometimes it was it was hard to figure out how to do it. But again, I think having the space of the mosque uh, where the people at the mosque would talk to them about these issues, they would talk to each other, they would talk to their parents, really was crucial. I mean, I think the irony is you hear all these attempts to kind of prevent the building of mosques and people who are against kind of the expansion of things like this. But in, in the end, I think having these spaces, and this has always been true in America with immigration and different religions coming into the country, that having spaces for people to settle and spend time together really is a way of becoming American, not a way of separating. How important did they see, did these young boys, how important did they see the mosque in their lives? Uh, I think they saw it as very important. And, you know, what's interesting is I think they saw it as much more than just a place, you know, of religious worship. And again, there's a lot of history to this of how different ethnic groups coming to America have used churches and synagogues and as gathering places to just do many things besides worship, but to spend time together, to connect with each other, to have important conversations about their lives and, and places that felt safe and kind of comfortable, but also places that they would even invite friends in. So it wasn't just a kind of Muslim only place, but, you know, friends from their school would come in and learn about the religion. The mosque was very open, especially since 9-11, when there's been so many misconceptions about Islam. The mosque would really actively welcome people in to learn about Islam. I think there's a real desire on the part of many American Muslims to teach people about their religion and what it's really like and try to counteract the barrage of media and other negative messages that are spread about the religion. But it's an uphill battle. Give us a little sense of how they dealt with conflicts between their religious beliefs or practices and the popular culture and the places and the points where those two things ran headlong into each other. Yeah, so that was sort of what I what sort of came into focus over my time there was seeing these sort of points of tension. Uh, one of them was really about hip hop music, which, as we know, a lot of the content can be very sexual, can talk about drugs and alcohol, can be very violent. Um, not very religious or Islamic from the point of view of the mosque and the leadership there, um, but was very important to these young people in terms of feeling accepted, feeling cool, and just sort of enjoying this very vibrant and exciting popular culture form. So they would come up with these ways of kind of adapting rap songs, that they would change the lyrics and make them more in line with kind of Islamic beliefs, or at least not so uh, crude and not so profane. Um, They would make up their own songs. um, And it was fun. It was sort of a way that they could be creative, but also find a way to kind of walk that line between being religiously appropriate and being kind of an urban cool kid at the same time. Did they all come to similar conclusions or were some more willing to allow in more of that popular culture? Yeah, I think there were definitely different approaches. I mean, I think some of them kind of had a pride in being more, um, a little bit more religious, a little bit more identifying with being kind of a following all the rules of Islam. 
and others them were a little bit more, you know, like to show that they were a little bit deviant, a little bit, you know, uh, not just following all the rules. And, and one way that that came out is in the issue of dating, which is really central and would be talked about a lot by these young men, because it's something that, of course, is very expected for American teenagers to have relationships before marriage, um, many of which will involve physical intimacy um, and, you know, be very informal and, and not really um, your parents wouldn't really know about it necessarily, but within the the Muslim community that I was part of, the expectations were very different. That you know, if you had someone that you wanted to know in this way, you would talk to your parents about it. You would have the intention of marrying them, and you certainly were not supposed to have any kind of physical intimacy before marriage. So I think there were the young men took different approaches to this. Some of them took more of a trying to be a religious, uh, basically to try to date in a religious way. And so this is where the title of the book, Keeping It Halal, comes from, because this is what these young men would call this way of trying to date. And there really are parallels, and we can think about sort of evangelical Christian communities or other conservative religious communities. But the difference is that those communities have been around uh, in America for a longer time to kind of develop ways of doing this. Whereas for these immigrant Muslims, of course, African-American Muslims have been in the U.S. for a long time. But for these immigrant young Muslims, they're kind of making it up as they go. So one of these kind of made up modes of dating was called keeping it halal, where you tell your partner, you know, we're not going to kiss, we're not going to hug, we're going to, you know, keep this appropriate, and we're going to talk to our parents about it. Um, And so some of them would go more in that direction. Other ones would kind of hide more and and actually get into more kind of dating as we might know it in the U.S., but still try to bring some kind of appropriate Islamic um, practices to it in, you know, introducing their partners to their parents and talking about religion. So religion and Islam was always involved, but they definitely did have different approaches. And what I found is that the the young men that tried to do it the very, very religious way and the very appropriate way, it actually became quite frustrating. Uh, and this also happens when you read about um, sort of evangelical young people who try this. Mm-hmm. There's so much pressure to date, you know, to be accepted. Um, it's very hard to to do it in a very religious way and not feel kind of stress and, and like you're not, you're still not living up to that religious ideal. Do you sense that this is generationally evolving, that there's a difference between the older and younger teenagers and as the next generation of teenagers comes along, it'll be different still? That's a great question, Jeff. I mean, I think I think one thing, and I didn't wasn't able to get this information, but one idea that I have is that in some ways what happens is that the older generation may have gone through something quite similar, in fact, but then they don't really pass that information on to their kids. <laughs> so in some ways, I think every generation is kind of finding a way to do it. But I do think that little by little things are going to change over time without a doubt. Um, and I don't think that means that this identity will get lost or this religious practice will go away. But I do think it's going to be adapted and adjusted in a way that will make it look, take on aspects of American culture that may not have been part of it before. What makes you think that it won't get lost, that it won't just become subsumed? Um, I think because it's it's very meaningful to people. I mean, I think there's, and this is one thing that was sort of a, a very famous sociological prediction called the secularization thesis that, you know, things would, people would just become less religious over time and eventually religion would go away. Um, and I think that definitely has not been the case. Um, religion still matters to a lot of people, especially in America. And I think in some ways, America, interestingly, is a place where 
uh, it was really founded on religious freedom. So a lot of Muslims, in fact, say that they're able to practice their religion more in America than they actually can in some countries that they've come from where maybe their version of Islam is, is not permitted or there's more sort of religious conflict. So I think it's an identity that's meaningful to them. It's an identity that can you know, sit alongside the other identities in America that people are proud of, being an African-American or Latino or Christian. Uh, and so I don't think it's going to go away. And I think, But I think part of that is, of course, how it's received on the other side. And this is where there is some tension with, you know, especially in, in recent years, you know, since this fieldwork was done before the campaign and then the election of Donald Trump when anti-Muslim kind of uh, rhetoric became much more um, visible. And in fact, even talking to these young men since then, since uh, the Trump presidency, they've sounded actually quite um, more pessimistic and nervous about the acceptance of, of, of them and their families um, uh, in, in some of their neighborhoods and workplaces. So it's, it's, I guess, an open question as to how much it will be um, kind of allowed to flourish. And how much of it do they deal with by staying within their own close-knit community? And, and what are the fears and aspirations in terms of wanting to be part of, of the larger community and still keep their identity? Yeah, no, that's a great, great question. Um, so this is something that I really saw that, right, one way that they really were able to maintain this kind of <clears throat> robust and strong sense of Islamic identity and Islamic American identity is by sort of being with each other. And so their friendship group was in some ways very um, closed in the sense that they their closest friends were all Muslim and Muslim Americans. And as they sort of branched out and got older, as I talk about in the last chapter of the book, I sort of do some follow-ups with them. And they are drifting a bit away from the community and away from the mosque. And they are kind of trying out different things that they may not have before, which many college-age people do, experimenting with drinking, with different kinds of relationships. And so you could see the potential for them to drift away uh, from their Islamic and their Muslim identities a little bit. But I think that's not unusual for people of different religions and people of different um, even ethnic and immigrant backgrounds during their college years. So it's not a guarantee that that will continue in that direction. And I think a lot of it has to do with something that I wasn't able to track. You know, I'd have to follow up with them many years from now but as to how much they keep in touch and keep connected to their community. So I think even if they're away physically from their community, uh, maintaining friendships uh, with each other, you know, even of course online makes a big difference and being linked into people who are like you, even if you're not physically with them and then returning. And, you know, they were still going to the mosque regularly when I saw them. So I have a feeling it's going to be sort of a basis of who they are, even if they are able to hopefully branch out uh, into different kind of jobs, workplaces and neighborhoods where hopefully they'll be accepted uh, and still be able to be Muslim if that's important to them. How much are they aware of the importance of geography as they decide where they might want to go to college or where they might want to live after that? That, that you know, if they live, to put it bluntly, if they live in San Francisco, it's different than if they go to Oklahoma City. Yeah, no, good point. I think they're pretty aware of that. You know, it's funny they. I remember they would talk about going to different cities and, and, and being able to tell that difference. I think they also have a sense of where kind of their friend, where people they know live, where people they know have moved. Um, you know, they're mostly working class kids. So their parents were kind of teachers, cab drivers and that kind of thing. So they hadn't, um, I mean, of course, they'd come from other countries when they were young. So they traveled in that sense and sometimes gone back to those countries, but they hadn't necessarily traveled within the U.S. that much. So I think they did have a sense of kind of being in a large, diverse city uh, was really important to them and was, or not important, but definitely shaped how 
they experienced uh, interaction, how it might have been different living somewhere else. And in fact, that's one thing that I'm actually going to work on next with a another um, sociologist that I work with who does more kind of survey uh, analysis is to look at how do your experiences of being Muslim differ in different parts of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, along these lines? Because I think you're right on that it could be quite different. What do their parents wish for them? Um, good question. I think it depends on the parents. And I think this is one thing that was also useful for me to see up close. It makes it hard to generalize. But even within this small group of friends, um, there was variation within how their parents thought about this kind of thing. You know, some of them being more religiously strict and kind of wanting them to live a certain way and marry a certain kind of person and other of them being more open to them, you know, living a different way. But what's interesting is all those ways, I think, Islam and being Muslim was still an important part of it. It was just how would you live that out? And I think that's an important message that I received from spending time with these young people and and their families is that there are many ways to be Muslim. I think from the outside, people, especially who don't know any Muslim people, can think, you know, it's a very restrictive religion. It's a very narrow religion. Um, But when you get close up and meet different people, there's so many ways that people live this out and that it can have meaning to them but look very different. So some people's parents would be much more strict. Some people's parents would be much more open. So I think what they all have in common and why, you know, they're the people that I ended up studying, as you said at the top of the of the interview here, is that they are people who did want to have this be part of their lives. There are people who are Muslim in name, but don't really practice their religion. You know, that's another thing that I think people don't understand, that there's there are Muslims who aren't very practicing, who aren't very religious. And they may identify as cultural Muslims, like we could think of a parallel of maybe people who are Jewish, but more culturally than religiously. But there are also Muslims who don't even really call themselves Muslim. And that's just, you know, how they want to live. So there's there's varying ways that it can look. How is the changing and evolving role of Muslim women impacting these boys and how they see themselves? Yeah, so I think for them, uh, the mosque that I attended, and this is something that I talk about in the book as well, was a little bit, I don't know if that's unusual, but it was a little bit idiosyncratic in the sense that this mosque was seen as a pretty liberal mosque uh, from the perspective of other mosques in the in the city. And, and I think in terms of gender issues, which are always something that has to be considered with any religious community or, or any community, really, um, they were pretty open. I think uh, they allowed, you know, young men and women to sit together in the youth program. They, um, you know, occasionally had women, you know, lead speeches at the mosque. Um, they had a lot of women leadership in the mosque. So I think for these young men, they were able to see women in leadership roles and, and gender in a different way uh, than some mosques um, might might see it. Um, but I think also for them, they, they had parents and sisters who were quite um, – I think quite religious, but also quite independent, um, quite, you know, outspoken. So I think for them, that was actually one way they really distinguished themselves from from other Muslims, uh, as, as they really considered themselves pretty open in terms of gender issues. But, but of course, that varies um, depending on where you are. The desire for more involvement and more leadership role and more influence on the part of, of the Muslim women, did that impact how they saw themselves and what they would aspire to, the boys? Um, I don't think so. I think it made them, sort of gave them a sense of identity that they were people who valued, um, that valued women in that role, that they they really felt 
uh, a sense of pride that they were people who valued um, the role of women within the religion and within their communities. And finally, talk a little bit about what you think you would find if you go back to the same community 10 years from now, 15 years from now, and talk to another group of teenagers. How different might it be? Yeah, that's a great question. I think if I went back, I think the reality is it really depends on how things go. I think the overall climate of the country um, can really affect these things. I would hope that I would go back and find uh, people who feel much more accepted um, and much more kind of naturally moving through different parts of of the U.S. and parts of American life and, and don't have to try so hard to balance these things because other people know a lot more about Islam um, than they do now. But, you know, depending on how things go, it may be very similar or may even be be more difficult. So I think sort of how what we do and how the country goes in the next 10 years will say a lot about that. John O'Brien, his book is Keeping It Halal, The Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenage Boys. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks. I really had a great time. Thank you.